my starting point for, for getting into the, my whole area of research was a fascination with just what's the nature of intelligence. And in some sense, this is one of the three big questions of our day. The three is what's, you know, what's the origin of our universe? What's the origin of life? And what's the nature of intelligence? And in some sense, those are, are the biggest frontier scientific questions. And I was uh, personally became early from an early age fascinated with the third one, the nature of intelligence. Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at Fringe.fm. Generations of sci-fi nerds have grown up worshipping robots, R2-D2, C-3PO, in every sci-fi movie and book pretty much imaginable. There's been large, large roles played by robots and artificial intelligence, which is what makes today's interview and the future so interesting. Today, we've got Professor Peter Stone on the program. Peter is the founder and director of the Learning Agents Research Group within the larger Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at the University of Austin. He's an associate department chair and the chair of the university's robotics portfolio program. He's also the president and COO and co-founder of Kogatai, a startup that's building AIs that continually learn from real-world interactions, i.e. brains that are designed to work with enterprise. His main research interest is understanding how we can best create complete intelligent agents, and he focuses mainly on machine learning, multi-agent systems, and robotics. Peter Stone is very well known for his work in robot soccer. You'll see some incredible things in the episode if you look in the show notes, and we'll talk quite a bit at what the cutting edge is, especially given the World Cup and seeing who's going to win and just maybe when robots are able to win it all themselves. In today's conversation, we cover a lot of things, including why the general public is generally confused about artificial intelligence, what's cutting edge in the space of robotics and AI, how Peter and his team are perfecting soccer robotically, the big problem with government action in action when it comes to AI, the different types of AI and machine learning and advantages of each, how Peter and others think about consciousness with machines, the problem Peter sees with hype and fear-mongering, the implications with healthcare and quality of life in a society with increasing automation, Peter's recommendations to the government and regulators on AI, including the 100-year AI report, which he was a part of, why Peter believes we're still a long way off from artificial general intelligence, and why AI is both overhyped and underhyped. And just as a warning, parts of the audio in the very beginning are a little bit rough. Don't worry. Everything makes complete sense. You're able to understand, and things transition much smoother once we jump to a better connection. Now, without further ado, I give you Professor Peter Stone. You probably know I'm big on biohacking and trying to make myself the best I can be. That's why I'm excited about what the guys at Neurohacker Collective and Daniel Schmachtenberger, who was previously on the podcast, are doing. They're some of the smartest biohackers on the planet, and their Qualia line of brain-enhancing nootropics make it obvious why. You guys can get 15% off any order, or with a subscription, 50% off and 15% off every future order by going to disruptors.fm slash qualia, that's Q-U-A-L-I-A, and using coupon code DISRUPTORS. At Disruptors, we're big on health and biotech. For a reason, it amplifies everything. Disruptors.fm slash qualia. Use coupon code disruptors. And now, let's get on with the program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So Peter, you're well known for robotic soccer, so we got to jump right into that. It's the World Cup. How did you get into robotic soccer and where, where are we at? What's the cutting edge today? Yes. Yeah. 
Great question. It all started more than 20 years ago. I was a, a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon University working on artificial intelligence. I knew I was interested in, in artificial intelligence, but I was working in an area that's commonly known as, as AI planning. Planning is a problem of trying to figure out what steps need to be taken to get the world from one particular state to, a, to another state. So you, know, you engage in planning when you're trying to figure out how you're going to get from home to the airport, if you're going to take a bus, if you're going to walk, if you're going to uh, drive in the car. This is a kind of um, uh, area in, in AI that's been going on for a long time, sort of classical AI. But I went to um, a, a conference my first year in, in graduate school. So it was the, the National Artificial Intelligence Conference. It was in Seattle, Washington. And uh, this must have been back in 1994. And there, there was a demonstration of from some colleagues at the University of British Columbia. Alan Mackworth and the student did Michael Sahota were showing two robots playing ping pong, like actual ping pong. Sorry, the audio cut out a bit here, but I'll let Peter jump back now. It really impressed me because the kinds of things you do when, when you're doing planning, the sort of slow deliberation, thinking ahead of time of what all the steps you're going to take, there was no time for that. These robots had to be figuring out as the ball was moving exactly what they wanted to do. They had to be much more reactive. And, uh, and it struck me that this was you know, a really exciting challenge for artificial intelligence. And I happened to be a soccer player myself. I played on my varsity soccer team in, in college. I tried out for major league soccer when that got started in this, uh, in this country. And, and so it just you know, it saw, seemed to me as both a, a great way to mix my passion for the, the sport of soccer as just personally with a real professional challenge of how can you get robots or, or you know, an artificial intelligence program to go through the challenges of perceiving the world, figuring out exactly where the opponents are, where the ball is, deciding, you know, sort of doing something like planning, but at a much quicker, more, uh, more reactive level, and then actually ex ex executing those actions the robot has to actually do it. And, um, and so this was very inspiring to me. I uh, sort of immediately moved from, um, from planning to trying to, to uh, focus on the aspects of of robot soccer that were a really perfect challenge for artificial intelligence. Hey, Matt here. I wanted to take a quick time out. I think one of the reasons Peter has been so successful with robot soccer and his research in general is his passion. He's passionate about both intelligence and robotics, and he was a hardcore soccer player. Mixing those two into a career has proved incredibly fruitful for Peter and the rest of the robotics community. I just wanted to highlight this because I think when you are able to combine your passion with skill, then we do get much, much further along. We've all worked in jobs that we hate and find that our motivation is not quite there. You don't change the world if you're not motivated. Fringe FM is about motivating the creators to change the world. So if you have something you're motivated about and you want to make a change, just go do it. And the timing was great because it was a time when there were other people in the world starting to get interested in this. And there was a, some colleagues in Japan, Hiroaki Kitano, Minoru Asada, Itsuki Noda, who were starting a, a robot soccer challenge sort of akin to the deep blue challenge of, of computers beating people at chess. and um, and it just grew from there. We had the first international competition in 1997, um, and there've been yearly events every year, trying to with the goal of trying to create a team of, of humanoid robot soccer players that can beat the best World Cup champion on a real soccer field by the year 2050. That's our, our stated goal. Time out. Before we jump to the spoiler alert, how close we actually are, I want you to make a guess. When do you see robots, humanoid robots, being able to beat the world's best soccer team, be that Brazil, Spain, Argentina, England, someone else entirely? We're in the middle of the World Cup fever, so I think it's interesting. And I think it's also interesting to look at how researchers' prospects change. We come up with an idea, a goal, and then over time, things accelerate, as is the case with robotics, evolution, and all others. And suddenly, we find ourselves getting closer and closer. So what do you think? When is it doable? Make a guess. Now we're jumping back. 
And how close are we to that? I know it's exponential technology, so it will accelerate. But how close are we to that being realistic? Well, it's really hard to measure um, you know, how, how close we are. There's a lot of different things that have to come into play. There's the hardware aspect of, of building physical robots that can move with the agility that people do, that can you know, stop and start quickly, that can change direction, that can kick a ball with precision. So you know, there's, um, there's been a lot of progress on the hardware side, but we're still far from that, um, being able to match you know, humans' agility with, with humanoid robots. And it's, it's really hard to, it's hard to judge how, you know, how we're doing compared to people. I can, I can say very noticeably, if you look at videos of the competition from 1997 compared to today, there's been a huge advance in, in both of those dimensions and, and in many others. But, you know, we're not anywhere near the point where robots could challenge a professional team. In fact, we've had, uh, I'm on the board of trustees of the Robocop Federation. And since 2007, every year we've played um, against one of the, the champion teams in one of the robot soccer leagues. There's sort of different sizes, but the, the fastest ones that use a real soccer ball. And still uh, aging amateur soccer players are still able to easily beat the, beat the robots. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll see. There's, there's, uh, we're making, making progress, but um, still a long way, but still a long time to go. Do you think it's more of a hardware or software problem at this point? Not just with robot soccer, but with general multi-purpose robotics in, in everyday life. They go hand in hand. Every time there's, uh, you know, you can't just, um, you, you can't say it's one or the other. The, every time there's an advance in, in hardware, that makes different software challenges. Sometimes it leapfrogs the things that we used to have to solve in software and make it so that it's trivial to do because the hardware is better, but then it raises new challenges that, that nobody had been addressing before. And so, you know, I, th- I think we need improvements in, in both. The, the same algorithms, or, you know, existing algorithms aren't going to do the whole, the whole trick, and certainly existing hardware isn't up to the test. They, they both need to be, um, to be improved, and we need advances in both, and they, they can't be done independently. They, they go hand in hand. And this is one of the biggest problems with human evolution. Our, our software doesn't speed up as quickly as our hardware does. That's a, that is slightly unrelated. But how do, you, how do you tie the two fields of robotics and then human enhancement in? Because there are a lot of similarities and a lot of differences in what you're doing and the challenges. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't think too, different, too much about the, uh, the differences. or the, you know, I, I, In my research, focus on the fundamental capabilities and what can we make what can we make robots do? What, what are the algorithms that we can use for perception? You know, it's, it's, it's quite, uh, like you say, the, the, the advances that can help a robot perceive could potentially also help people perceive. And I think there's very interesting studies and in, in, in advances in brain-machine interact, uh, interfaces. And I think, you know, the, the advances in artificial intelligence are, are quite relevant to, um, to both fully autonomous robots and, and human enhancements. I, but I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, my, my research focus has always been on the, on the full autonomy side, on the robotics. You know, if you're at a play or in the movies and there's an intermission break or even sports when people go to grab the snacks, well, that's what happened here. We had some technical difficulties. We cut back into the interview. You'll notice that Peter's voice sounds a little bit different. You'll notice that Peter's voice sounds a little bit different, but the interview becomes incredibly interesting. So I recommend you keep listening. Just wanted you not to get too disturbed. And now back. Well, initially, when we were getting started, you said you chose software and computer science. Why did you choose that? And how do AI researchers look at the different types of intelligence and what's possibly needed to create more sophisticated types of artificial intelligence? Yeah, well, that's right. As, as you said, my, my starting point for, for getting into the, my whole area of research was a fascination with just what's the nature of intelligence. And in some sense, this is one of the three big questions of our day. The, the three are what's, you know, what's the origin of our universe? 
uh, what's the origin of life and what's the nature of intelligence? And in some sense, those are, are the biggest frontier scientific questions. And I was uh, personally became early from an early age fascinated with the third one, the nature of intelligence. And so I spent my my college years trying to figure out what's the right way to uh, to attack that. I went to classes in neuroscience where we were you know, learning how, how the brain works. Based at that time, the, the level of understanding was basically we, we knew that there were neurons, that they have axons and dendrites and synapses, and, and that the sort of chemical processes were being discovered for how neurotransmitters get, send signals through the brain. But really, I found, it, I found it frustrating. It was really at a very low level. There was nothing that would tell me what happened in, in my brain when somebody told me their phone number and I remembered it the next day or something like that. What, what physically changed? And so I sort of you know, put that aside. I thought maybe there'll be advances in neuroscience and I'll come back to that someday, but it was just too low level. So then I went to some psychology classes and, and um, there were a lot, of, a lot of information on sort of biases that people exhibited, some, some great, very interesting results that sort of uh, looked at the phenomenological properties of the brain, how the brain, what the brain does, how it behaves, but really without any explanation for how it was happening underneath the hood. And so to me, that was too much at the high level. And it was really not until I got into to computer science and in particular artificial intelligence, where I found really, to me, a, a satisfying and fascinating mix of the two, trying to create an artifact, a computer that would exhibit intelligence as a way of understanding what intelligence is. And this you know, didn't get us directly at how the brain works necessarily. The goal was not to, to duplicate or mimic the brain or you know, understand um, exactly how the brain works, but rather to create an intelligent artifact in, in, with whatever means we could. And by doing that, I, I, you know, I feel like there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, understanding to be gained. And so it's always been fascinating to me. I still really value the connections with psychology and neuroscience, and I collaborate with, with colleagues in those fields. And there's been really impressive advances there. It's, it's you know, a lot, in some ways, the, the three fields can be are very complementary and, and can be seen as coming together. But at the time when I got into uh, the artificial intelligence, it was the, this, um, this sort of middle ground of, of getting in between the, the the cellular level and the behavior level and really trying to understand by building intelligent artifacts what intelligence was all about. That's what that's what really fascinated me. And now we're entering or in a major AI hype cycle. I know we go through peaks and troughs and that is very frustrating for you based off of the talks I've seen that you've done on how AI is classified and promoted in the media and otherwise. Can you talk a little bit more about how general, not just not artificial general intelligence, but how traditional AI is defined, how it's researched and improved, and then where you hope to head? Yeah. So first, I should, I should clarify, I mean, the, 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 we definitely are in a hype cycle. And there's, there's times when, when AI is, is sort of underhyped, where it's not appreciated. And then there's other times where it's overhyped, where there's uh, sort of people um, believe that it's capable of more, of more than it is. And you know, so I, I'm not sure that it's uh, it's not so much that it's that it's frustrating. It's just something we need to to recognize and and react to. I think there's um, it, it's great for the field when there's a lot of attention given, but it, it raises other challenges. And um, and then you know, same thing when there's when it's sort of on the other side of the cycle, it's uh, there's different challenges. But uh, yeah, in terms of definitions, it's it's really hard to define um, artificial intelligence. It's even hard to define intelligence. So you know, th- there isn't really a generally accepted one. I was, uh, if you if you look at the the AI 100 report, which is a report that I chaired and uh, the first study panel report for about two years ago now, or a year and a half ago, this was me and, and several of my colleagues were charged with 
trying to predict what the likely impacts of artificial intelligence technologies would be on a typical urban setting, a typical North American city by the year 2030. In there, we started by defining artificial intelligence as a, a collection of tools and artifacts that are often inspired by the way the human brain, body, and nervous system work but uh, and that try to accomplish some of the same things, but often in very different ways. And a really important part of that definition is that it's a collection. Artificial intelligence is a collection of tools. It's not one thing. If, if I had to, to sort of point out one biggest myth in the general public about artificial intelligence, it's that it's, it's one unified thing that, that if you make an advance, you can just take it and then sprinkle it on other applications to make them smarter. And that's just not the way it is, right? Just It's very tempting to think that if there's a program that can do something that I can't do, then it must be smarter than me. And if it's smarter than me, it can do everything that I can do. And it's just, you know, that that's faulty logic. And that's, it's what causes when there's a program that beats the world champion at, at, for instance, chess or Go or Jeopardy, it causes people to look at that and say, wow, that's something I couldn't do. Therefore, it should be able to do everything I can do, like fold the laundry and drive the car and do the dishes and, and all these other tasks that, that, uh, that people seem, see as not requiring nearly as much intelligence. And the reality is that, that every, every application, every advance requires different focused advances. And, and there's really, you know, there's not just one method or one technique. There's, there's really a lot of different threads within the field and they all need to be nurtured. They all need to be, you know, explored. And, and so, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's what I like to take a lot of care to emphasize with people is that, that, you know, artificial intelligence isn't one thing. It's really, it's, a, you, it's better to talk about in terms of AI-based technologies rather than AI as a whole. And this, this has implications also for public policy and for, you know, so for, for thinkers in the government about, you know, where, where I try to caution against trying to think of AI as something that can be regulated as a unit, for instance. It's much, much better to think in terms of AI technologies that are applied to medicine or that are applied to, to driving or transportation, and to really examine those separately and make separate policy decisions about them. That's another really important message from the, from the AI 100 report. Are you scared by the ignorance of policymakers on this and other issues? Um, yes. <laughs> I wouldn't limit that to just AI. I'm... I'm um, you know, I'm scared by the ignorance of, of policymakers about everything that they that, uh, that they make uh, decisions about. I think you know, there's uh, we we our system is is built to to entrust um, important decisions with a sort of um, in the hands of a relatively small number of, of people. It's really important that they take their job seriously in terms of being uh, educated and informed when they're going to make those decisions. Some people, I think, you know, some of the policymakers do, and and others don't. And when I you know when I see evidence. That there's decisions that are being made without the full information and, and a real deep understanding of the issues. Yeah, I think that that can be very scary. Let's play devil's advocate then. AI could go well, it could go horribly wrong. Is it better for media and for people with influence to play up the horribly wrong scenario because then at least you get the public and government at least preparing for something? So, you know, I think it's important to realize that all technologies can be used for good or for evil. And you know, we've seen very poignant examples of that in recent history. I mean, you know, our, our world is, is a much better place, I would argue, I think most people would argue, because of the invention of, of air travel and airplanes and being able to, to you know, see the world and, and have cultures mix and, and be able to, you know, to, to really reduce the friction of travel. But, you know, the, the, the 9-11 attacks, the airplanes were used as weapons. And really, it's not the airplanes 
fault. It was the way people use the techno use the technology. And you know, I think that there's there's always the potential. Almost every technology can be used in good ways and bad ways. This is such a slippery slope here. Technology is neither good nor evil. But we have to look at the implications of technology and how it can be used by human beings. I think certain things, such as bombs, clearly are negative, and other things, such as the internet, clearly are positive. But there are implications that extend beyond the, the general usage of what a product or technology would be. The biggest problem I've found with technologists is just putting off this burden to someone else. Facebook and fake news, Twitter and hate speech. A lot of technology today is being used for good and for evil, but the creators are oftentimes not willing to accept responsibility for what they've created. It's the Frankenstein scenario, so to speak. And I think scientists need to think just a little bit more about this before blaming the, blaming the users. You know, I think it's, it's counterproductive to, to overreact in either direction. That, that, you know, there shouldn't be an alarmist. The, the media shouldn't be alarmist about the negative possibilities, and the media should also not be over-optimistic about the, um, the positive implications. There's, the reality is that there are, there are advances being made, that there are some great possibilities, that, they, you know, that we need to consider very carefully what the impacts are on society. And, um, and you know, if, uh, some would argue that, that, uh, that uh, technology is a... Um, you know, on balance has, has been bad for society. I, I find that a very hard, difficult argument to support. I think on balance, the technological advances that, that we've seen in humanity have made the, our world a better place and have the potential to, to really fix a lot of problems and fix more problems than they create. But it requires responsibility on, on all of our parts. And um, I think it's you know, one, one question I often ask my students or I bring up at the end of talks is I ask people in the room if they had a choice between being born 100 years earlier than they were born or being born 100 years after they were born, which would they, which would they choose? And um, I think that sort of gets at the, at the crux of the issue. There are, there's actually really strong arguments in, in both, both directions. It's, I don't give people the choice of staying put because most people fear change. So I think, you know, I tell them you either have to move, uh, you know, you either have to move backwards or forwards. And a lot, you know, there are people who will argue that, that, you know, really the world was, was better a hundred years ago, that there, the families were closer, that there were less interruptions, that there was a, you know, a quality of life. And on the flip side, that if you jump forwards a hundred years, who knows what might have happened? There could have been a, you know, a nuclear disaster. There could have been, you know, there's, there's, who knows what you would find yourself uh, awaking into the middle of. But I, you know, my, my view, and I, I think you know, usually when I have this discussion, the optimistic view that, that the world is, has been overall get, becoming better as a result of technology carries the day, at least if you look at healthcare and, uh, and uh, you know, industries like that. But I think you know, artificial intelligence and robotics have been and, are, and will continue to play a role in, in making the world a better place, as long as we are very cognizant of the, the dangers and the potential you know, nefarious uses. And take all of the all of the steps possible to to you know, maximize the the benefits and minimize the minimize minimize the harms. I like Kevin Kelly's definition that humanity's roughly fifty one percent good and forty nine percent bad, and we're getting a little bit better every year, and that's how we lead to exponential better change. But I want to I want to question or jump back to you brought up that your the report that you guys were working on. The first step was defining artificial intelligence, which is challenging enough. But the second step was policy recommendations in terms of how we can try to make a transition more successful. I want to jump into a little bit into that and what you guys found or came up with. Yeah. So, well, first of all, I would, I would strongly recommend uh, to, to listeners to, to look at the, the AI 100 report. 
it's available online for free. And we've, we took a lot of care to make it accessible to, to the general public. And we've gotten a lot of positive feedback on, on its accessibility. So anybody who wants to, to see de- details, that's, that's a good place to look. In terms of the, the a summary of some of the policy recommendations, which was the last section of the report, the ones that, that, uh, that come to mind most saliently, one was something we already discussed, is, is finding ways to make sure that the policymakers are as educated as possible about the the subtleties of the technology that there's you know dangers both in greenlighting a technology that that could you know has uh, potential for a lot of harm but also on the flip side of, of blocking a technology that has the potential for a lot of benefit and so and it's uh, it can be difficult to to really understand um, the issues to try to lump a lot of technologies together and that's that's one thing that we that we caution strongly against in the report another uh, another thing is that I think is is very important is there's a lot of investment right now in applications of artificial intelligence to to industrial settings where there's a potential to make money in the near term. And of course, that's what you would expect from industrial research labs, that there's you know, there's a lot of investment in AI coming from, from many, many different companies. And they're, of course, going to be focused on the you know the applications where there's it's going to help their company's bottom line, but that leaves on the table many potential uses of AI technology and advances of um, applications that could really benefit the uh, benefit society, but that aren't really don't really have an obvious path towards making making money. An example is a colleague of mine, Milan Tambe at University of Southern California, has has uh, um, speaks often of a, of a project that he's been involved in in identifying in uh, the homeless population the the social network the, the hubs of the social network to make it as easy as possible to disseminate information about HIV so that if they you know get it to the right people it will disseminate as quickly as possible through the rest of the homeless population and and that's not something that any any company is going to look at as oh that's a great way to make money but it's the kind of thing that could really make a difference in society and so we you know we call out call strongly for government investments in the types of applications that would not otherwise be addressed by industrial AI research. Side of robotics and AI, what industries are you most interested in? So, well, robotics and AI have connections to many different other disciplines. And I think as we've as mentioned before, I'm fascinated by the connections between neuroscience and artificial intelligence and psychology and artificial intelligence. And I'm, um, I'm tracking, you know, from afar, um, but but tracking the kinds of advances that are happening in the industry of, of brain machine interfaces, of um, neuroprosthetics, of you know, the kinds of sort of ways of helping people who have had had catastrophic injuries by connecting devices with to their brains and allowing them to to maintain an, a productive and normal life. I'm, I'm very excited by by the advances there. I think that's still in its um, it's a very nascent industry, but it's something that fascinates me. When you look into some of these other industries, how do you look at them from the lens of a, a scientist or researcher? Yeah, I mean, often when I'm looking at industries today, I, I'm wondering and, and uh, to what extent artificial intelligence tools and technologies and uh, progress research can benefit and can be used. I think an example is almost everybody these days who's doing machine learning, well, these days almost everybody equates artificial intelligence with machine learning. And almost everybody who's doing machine learning in industry is doing what we call, we refer to in the field as supervised learning, which is basically if you're given a 
big labeled data sets, for instance, uh, images that, that have labels of whether there's a pedestrian in the image or not, being able to process that so that you learn a function such that if you're given a new image, you could um, predict what a, whether a person would say there's a, there's a pedestrian in there or not. That's a very well-developed area. And I think a lot of people equate that with machine learning and AI these days. But I often look at uh, my research in machine learning tends, uh, happens to be in an area known as reinforcement learning, which is about learning the effects of actions. And this is you know, very appropriate for, for the robot soccer domain that we talked about earlier, but for many other applications. And I often, I get the sense that people don't even think of the possibilities for reinforcement learning or learning the effects of actions because they don't realize that there are tools and techniques that can can address some of these challenges. And so I'm co-founder of a startup company known as, as Kojitai, where we're, we're actively developing a platform and, and tools to try to help industry, industrial applications that have this, this sequential decision-making aspect where they have to learn about the effects of many actions over time. And, uh, and so I often am, am looking from that perspective. Where are, the, where are the problems that people just aren't realizing that there are machine learning tools and algorithms that could be beneficial to them? How are the algorithms, from, from my understanding, a lot of current AI has just purely been, has purely been facilitated by the, the rising power of compute and greater access to cloud computing and resources needed to run stronger machine learning models. How much has actually changed since the 70s and 80s when machine learning and AI were the last rage? Well, a lot has changed. And this goes back to the, you know, the question of, of what, where do the advances need to be? In, in, are they in hardware? Are they in software? The, um, the algorithms, the software and the, new, the algorithms that are being developed, in many cases, are based on ideas that have been around for many years and have been continually developed and improved over time. But where the, the, the value added is or where the focus needs to be often depend, changes as, as hardware changes. In, in some sense, I think of, of AI as being trying to, the, or the, the challenge of AI or the role of AI is, is writing software that can get computers to do things that they can't do without, uh, with the most obvious or brute force solutions. And the, over time, the, the kinds of things you can do with the brute force solutions or the obvious solutions changes because the hardware improves. And so now where we spend time in, on the software side sort of gets the frontier of that keeps getting pushed out. And, and um, it doesn't necessarily change the algorithms, but it can change the, the focus of the, of the research and, and whether we need to, you know, a lot of the focus recently has been on making the algorithms scale and be able to operate in a distributed way across many different processors. That just wasn't an issue back in the 70s when, when some of the algorithms were invented. It was just, you, know, you, you had to run very small scale tests. And so, and then by the, once you do that, that also leads to possible uh, improvements in the algorithm. So, you know, I, it's, it's, I think, an oversimplification to say that all of the progress has been as a result of, of greater compute power. AI always uses the best computers that are out there and then tries to develop the algorithms that, uh, that will push the frontier beyond what they could do without, uh, without the intelligence. Who do you look up to in terms of scientists, sci-fi writers, et cetera, to stay motivated and then stay curious? Well, there's so many, so many people. There's, I mean, there's, there's historical uh, you know, people um, who I grew up be, uh, with inspiration from uh, people like science fiction, many different science fiction writers who thought ahead to a lot of the, uh, a lot of the issues that, that are being, are coming up now and, and may come up in the future. I happened to, to read a lot of, of Isaac Asimov when I was a, a kid and Arthur Clarke as well, but, uh, but they you know, by no means were the only ones. Scientifically, I uh, have taken a lot of inspiration 
from uh, Herb Simon, who was one of the one of the founders of the field of artificial intelligence. I happened to have the good fortune of him being on my my thesis committee when I was a, a PhD student, and, and really enjoyed my conversations with him. He was so far ahead of his time in many ways, and but but he was not the only one. There were many of uh, many. Um, many colleagues of, of his and his generation that really lay the, the groundwork for, for uh, where we are today. And, um, and there's just, yeah, there's too, there's too many others to, to name from, you know, current colleagues of mine who many have done, done great things and continue to do great research. You know, we, we're living in very exciting times in the field of AI. We're living in incredibly exciting times. A little scary too. What industries or areas are you most afraid of or most, most give you a little bit of stress thinking about? Well, again, I, I think, you know, in all industries, there are, in many industries, there are positive and negative possible futures. I do, uh, you know, I, I, I'm generally optimistic that, that we'll find ways for AI technologies to be, to be more beneficial than, than not in areas such as um, transportation and healthcare and industrial robotics and home and service robots. These are, these are many of the areas we looked at in the AI 100 report, we sort of broke it down into to eight different areas, and in each one, sort of examined the the pros and cons, or the the I guess possible benefits, possible risks, and what steps need to be taken. One thing we did scope out, we we did not address in the AI 100 report by deliberately in this in this um, iteration. It's something that's uh, it's called the AI 100 report because there's going to be studies periodically for, for at least the next 100 years is the plan. But uh, we were told not to co- concern ourselves with the impacts of AI technologies in the military for this iteration that may be addressed in a future report. But that is one where, um, you know, if I had to choose one that, that, uh, that is potentially quite, quite scary is, is that one. And there's, there's been many AI researchers who've, who've come together in recent years to voice opposition to um, fully autonomous weapons. That are, that uh, and and I think you know that's that's something that I would like to see uh, um, as a line being drawn there that that uh, that there would never be a, a decision to to take a human life without a, without a human in the loop and so you know there's there's sort of a vocal vocal group of, of AI researchers lobbying for for that to the to the military and I think that is one that I think we do have to be concerned about there's you know I, I would I'd be very concerned if we started seeing an arms race globally on lethal autonomous weapons. So uh, that, that's, a, that's the one that, that jumps to mind as, as the most scary at the moment. Who funded the research? And then taking a life, there's also saving a life. What about the autonomous car crash scenario? And how do researchers think about that? Yeah, so who's funding the research? My, uh, I, my research has, has been funded from a variety of sources. I have uh, support from the National Science Foundation for some of the work that I do. From some of uh, some of the arms of the of the Defense Department, the Office of Naval Research and and DARPA and such. I just want to double click here on some of the conflicts of interest when it comes to research potentially. I don't think Peter personally had conflicts of interest, but you can see that some of the funding for this DARPA, which is the Defense Research Initiative of the U.S. government, didn't want autonomous killing drones or autonomous weapons to be discussed in the report because obviously they were funding the research and they didn't want to point out some of the negative consequences of, yes, what they were creating. Just always look into this when you see research, because whoever is funding it has a big, big impact on what the research actually says, what they focus on, and what the, what the implications are. 
but uh, mainly at, at within the university on on the uh, on basic research side. And also, a lot, I've, uh, there's been a lot of industry sponsors recently. Many different companies have been funding basic research as well, which is, has been very very beneficial in terms of. And, and we're very you know it's, uh, that's one of the things that makes it an exciting time to be in the field. And there's also I should say there's also some research going on within the within industry themselves itself, and that is part of the reason that I also. Uh, involved in my own company, Kojotai. There's, there's, you know, there are some things that are best done in the in the academic realm, and some that are that, that's best done in the in the private sector. And so, I think there's there's a really nice uh, balance that we're always right now uh, trying to to make sure that it's maintained. But so there's, there's you know funding from many different sources at the moment. And now things get interesting. Peter's about to jump into the autonomous vehicle and decide is he going to crash and kill himself or someone else. The moral, ethical, and futuristic implications of autonomous vehicles. Coming now. With regards to the autonomous car crash scenario, I mean, I, I think that there has been a lot of uh, that's been a, an inspiration for lots of philosophizing and um, and trying to figure out, you know, what what should happen from a legal perspective, from an insurance perspective, from an ethical perspective, if a car is in a situation where there's a, a life or death decision that, you know, that where a choice has to be made, either, um, either put one, one person's life at risk or another. And how does that, how does that carry forward? These are very difficult decisions. One thing that I feel very strongly about is that, that it should not be the technologists making those decisions. Rather, the people who are building the autonomous cars should expose those kinds of decisions as options or choices that need to be made at the societal level that can be done through a you know it might be that the choice that, that's right for the United States is not the same choice that's right for Japan or for Sweden or for Australia these are you know are are choices that should be made deliberately and and with public discussion not by somebody who happens to to write an algorithm a particular way without exposing it but i you know i do also think that these these questions need to be taken in the context of I, I think it would be a disaster if if autonomous cars are are, um, are blocked because we can't figure out how to answer this question one way or another. The potential savings at the global scale are huge. There's you know if, if we compare against the status quo with human drivers in the U.S. alone, there are forty thousand fatalities per year. And I'd really be you know it would be be a shame if if we can't figure out if there's a, if if it would be possible to get to reduce that number. To you know, a small fraction, to one thousand or five thousand, with autonomous cars, but we're not able to field it because of of lawsuits or legal questions that would all arise. You know, it'd be a different, might be a different a thousand people or a different five thousand people from the forty thousand who were who were being killed with with by, at the hands of human drivers, and uh, you know that causes legal and and insurance and ethical real dilemmas and questions. But like I say, I think it would be a shame if we can't work through those and move towards a world where there is, uh, you know, where it's, it's overall on balance safer to um, to travel. Realistically, we, we need to get to the scenario where it'll kill the driver. If there's more people that would be killed otherwise, people won't get in those cars is the challenge. I think you might have to start with telling people we'll save you first and then just flip the switch on everyone and say, sorry, guys, either your car doesn't work or you accept how it is. Because I don't see another scenario. People won't get in the car. It tells them that we're going to look out for more people than just you. Yeah, I mean, you know, if if people were going to be risk averse about uh, about driving, they shouldn't get in the car at all right now. I mean, it's it, you know, they're um, the, the the chance of of dying at the hands of a human driver are are also relatively high. And um, 
you know, it's, you, you can't say that, uh, that the human driver will be um, perfect at, at protecting the people in the car either. And it's, uh, so I, I see what, I mean, I do understand your, your point. I think it will, um, but if it's a, uh, and it might be the kind of thing that the car companies make that, uh, make that distinction. I mean, really what we want to aim for is that just, you know, safe drive driving overall. And that if, you know, that the, the chances of, of accidents and injury goes down period. And that's, you know, the, the, that the car is always doing the best it can to, to minimize, um, to minimize, uh, injury and, uh, and if, uh, if it comes to that loss of life. Will AI lead us away from capitalism and towards a more utilitarian or socialist economy? Well, again, AI is not one thing. AI is a collection of different technologies. I don't think AI will, uh, do anything as a, as a whole. I think there are, you know, there are, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? No. Yeah. There are different technologies that, that I, I think. It's quite possible that that uh, you know there'll be that uh, the the current economic system will be turned on its head. You know, I think that it, it's it is, and this is a point also we make in the I100 uh, study. It's, it's you know the right time is, is now to think about what are, what would be the implications if if there's more um, more concentration of wealth than there is now, which is already becoming extreme, and the trends seem to be going that way. Historically, when you know when the um, gap between rich and poor becomes too too large it, it leads to revolution and then you know who knows what happens when you come out on the other uh, on the other end of that and so you know i think if we want to avoid that we do need to figure out ways to make sure that the benefits or the 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 economic benefits that arise from artificial intelligence aren't too concentrated in the in the hands of a few do you think we'll move towards a system where we have some type of software or artificial intelligence that is either voting or controlling the government as opposed to people that have wants, needs, and possible corruption? That's not something that, that I see happening in the, in the foreseeable future. Again, I would never say you know, that that is, is a scenario of, of, uh, of science fiction novels that I've, that I've seen in the, in the past. I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say never, but I think there should be, there should be a lot of caution before, before anybody moves in that direction. It'll take, it'll take a while. We'll see. We'll see. I know we're starting to run up to uh, your time limit. Where's the best place for people to find you, Peter? Um, well, there's lots of information about me, my past research, and uh, many of the things I do on my on my webpage. If you just search for Peter Stone, at University of Texas at Austin, you can find me. And uh, I've taken taken a, a bunch of care to to make uh, to organize my website in a way with with some uh, videos of, of talks that I've given, links to all of my publications, and um, and lots of information about my past. And now, our most important question, right before we wrap up, I want a bold prediction. Twenty years out, it can be on anything. So, uh, you know, one thing that we've learned in AI is, is if you're going to make predictions about the future, pick a year that's, uh, that's likely to be after you retire, because uh, then people won't, uh, won't be able to say, I, I told you so. It's, it's very difficult to predict the, the, the future. People say that, you know, we, we underestimate what, uh, that we overestimate what could happen in the next five years and underestimate what could happen in the longer term. And, it's, you know, it's, uh, that's often the case. It's very difficult to, to calibrate. I still like the prediction of, of um, the year 2050, which is a little more than 20 years out, but a team of humanoid robot soccer players beating the best uh, World Cup team on a real soccer field. I don't know if it's possible. I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't bet too strongly on it, but I also wouldn't bet against it. And that's something I'm actively working towards. So, so that's the one I'd like people to keep their eyes on. We've got to get scientists to start betting more, make some gambling, have some fun out of this. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks for coming today, Peter. My pleasure. It's been a great discussion and it's been, uh, been a pleasure to be, uh, be on your show. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. And uh, we'll talk to you guys again soon. We believe credibility is king. You may have noticed that Fringe FM, unlike most other podcasts, isn't filled with three minutes of ads at the beginning and end of every episode for comfy mattresses, better hiring or conferencing software, or robotic doorbells. 
And that's not that advertisers haven't asked. The thing is, if we tried to sell you on buying our advertisers' products, that would require deception and a level of misalignment and lack of open transparency and trust that we think podcasting in this medium necessitates. Would you trust someone who turned around and tried to sell you shit? We wouldn't. The online ads-based ecosystem is killing our political and societal world. We're used to getting something for nothing and are thus stuck in a clickbaity society of Trumpian tweets focused on extracting attention and avoiding the real meaningful issues and conversations. To fix this, we need to start paying for things that we value. Otherwise, it's all BuzzFeed from here on out. So before you go, if you like Fringe FM and believe our mission to be important, consider making a tax-deductible donation. Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a registered 501c3 nonprofit focused on advancing science worldwide. That means you can write off your donation for tax purposes and possibly even get your employer to match the donation, all of which would drastically boost the level of good that we can do in the world and the quality of show we can produce. To learn more about supporting Fringe FM and whether your gift would qualify to reduce your taxes, please visit fringe.fm give for more information. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.